Uh, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to start this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up. If you have a phone or an iPad or all that, if not, there's a Bible sitting in front of you. Uh, we invite you to open that up to, to Acts chapter 2. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Acts. So it's the fifth book of the Bible. <clears throat> and you know, January is a time of evaluation, right? We, we talked last week about, about goal setting and do our goals require God or not? It's also a time when people want to get fit and people look at their lives and they think about how they're eating and they want to sleep more and all this kind of stuff. And I think all of us to some degree live in this frog in a kettle mode. Frog in a kettle mode, right, is that the heat slowly is turning up. We're slowly dying over the increased heat, but we don't notice it. It happens so incrementally over time that we just slowly find ourselves in kind of a sleepier fog and it feels like a hot tub and pretty pretty soon we're dead to the very things we said, man, we'll, we'll never do that. We'll never get boiled and, and get eaten, but we find ourselves there. I think all of us live in that. Think about this. Think about stated ideas that you say you believe in. Maybe stated ideals. These are the things I stand firm on. These are the things that I believe, that I value. That's on the one hand. And then think of your actual life, right? How do you actually live? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? Where do you go? What do you eat, right? When you look at those two things, I think for all of us, we would see a gap. These are the things I know are true and I say I value. This is how I actually live. As it is with the individual, so it is with a group of people, a collection of people. And that is this. Evaluation is really essential to growth. Evaluation is essential to growth for the individual, for the family that says, look, let's take a look at our values and how we're actually living. Let's make some changes here. So it is with a church. Churches need checkups just like bodies need checkups. So here's my question to us, church. What are our stated beliefs? What are the things we say are true? What are the things we say we value? And then how are we actually living that out? What are we actually doing as a church, as a collection of people? This morning we're starting a brand new series that's going to take us right up through Easter, and it's it's on the church. And you know, history speaks of the need for this this idea of, of wanting to or or needing to uh, hey, Carl, I'm trying to advance to my next slide, and it's not hitting. Thank you. Just the first one. Um, history tells us of the need that God is always growing and sustaining and empowering the church. The church is God's idea. He's the one that invented it. And so we're going to look to God for his instructions for it. He's always been sustaining. He's always been growing. And yet there's also always been problems that need addressing. There's always changes, some subtle, some really major that need to go on so that God can purify and discipline and train up the church. We're in Acts 2 because I want to talk to you about Pentecost. Pentecost is this period of time when God basically took miracle grow and poured it on the baby church, right? And and the thing just went crazy at the very start of things. And what happened was signs and miracles were accompanying the message of Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again. And in that one act, he conquered sin, he conquered death, he walked out of the chains of death, and so can we, because he opened that door for all who would trust in him. That's the gospel, that's the message of Jesus Christ, right? 
In the early church, God, in a supernatural, historic way, poured out signs and blessings to accompany the message. So the people wouldn't just be proclaiming it, but there would be these visible signs that were going on. So let's read about it. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is basically the birth of the church. So I thought it would be good to go to the beginning as we start here in our discussion on the church. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not all speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, uh, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Now here's what the story goes on to do. Peter goes on to give a sermon, and in his sermon he assures them, we're not drunk. (laughs) What we're experiencing is has been prophesied from long ago. These are ancient prophecies that are coming true in our very midst. And that is this. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Spirit of God would be poured out in the last days on God's people in a unique and powerful and visible way. We're living in that time. This is what Peter's saying to them post-Pentecost here. And God did this for a very specific reason. He did this so that people would call on his name and that they would be saved. And as you read to the end of the sermon, this is where the miracle grow part comes in, 3,000 souls were added that day. Now, it doesn't specify this, but that ought to beg the question, added to what? Added to the church. 3,000 souls, it says they received the word of God. That's what got them in. They received it. It's not just that they heard it. People mocking, saying, you're drunk. They heard it. But those who received it, it says they were baptized and repented, per Peter's instructions, and 3,000 souls were added that day to the church. Let's fast forward in time to the Reformation. Think about the word Reformation for a minute. It means to what? Reform something, right? If you have a reformation, it begs that, it it indicates that there's something that needs to be reformed. The reformation refers to the 16th century period when the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church were so bad that this guy named Luther rose up and he nails 95 theses to a door of a cathedral at Wittenberg and literally begins to change the minds of people. And here's what was going on. 
the church was being shaken forward and shaken free from some of the clutches that had been going on in it. The minds of men were shaping the church instead of the mind of God. This is what happens over time as sinful people, I'm one of them, lead the church. Our minds, our ideas, things that suit us rather than suit God begin to infiltrate the church. And the Reformation is a pretty fascinating period in church history where this giant like shift happened. And it was because God raised up the courage in Martin Luther and others during, during that period to call these things out. Here's what's really powerful. Let's fast forward again. It's 2016. It's our turn. The ball's been handed to us. The baton's been handed to us. Someone long ago was faithful to keep proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, trusting the word of God that says, that's the power for salvation to all men. It's the gospel. Keep proclaiming it. Keep preaching it. It's utter foolishness to those who don't believe in God. It's utter foolishness unless the Spirit of God awakens in you the heart, the mind, the will to receive these words as true. But it's been given to us. You're sitting in church this morning. You find church beautiful this morning by sheer gift. God's given us eyes to see that. So this series is really this question. What are we going to do with that? How are we doing? What are we going to do now that the baton's been handed to us? If you're a Bible reader in here, and I loved having a conversation with a friend of mine recently. He's fairly new to the church. And he said, um, he said, you know, week after week, I would come to church. I would come to community group. And I'd realize these people actually read the Bible. Every week I'd talk to someone. They, they had something they were learning from the Bible. He said that was so refreshing. Because I read the Bible too. And I didn't want to talk about, about the same few things. I wanted to talk about what God was teaching me right now through the Bible. If you're a Bible reader, here's what I'm convinced of. I think you have a certain distaste for the status quo in yourself and a real hunger for progress and growth. I think if you're a Bible reader, you have a real distaste for the status quo in churches and you have a real hunger for progress. Because as you read the Bible, you see things. It's a mirror to our lives, isn't it? It's a mirror to my marriage. It's a mirror to my parenting. It's a mirror to what I, what I am as a, as a part of a, of a society. It's a mirror to my thought life. And I say, God, help me. God, grow me. There's so much to change and grow. I think if you're a Bible reader, there's a certain distaste for what we see and a longing for more. Let me read for you the very start of a book called Your Church is Too Safe by one of my favorite authors. He's a pastor up in Canada somewhere. And if I ever get a chance to go to Canada and take him out to a cup of coffee, I'd love that. He's really impacted me. Here's how he starts the book, Your Church is Too Safe. He says, I'm bored, as are many people in church. Bored and also apathetic, passive, testy, lonely, disheartened. We're wary and weary and cranky, and sad. It's a long list. There's an enormous gap between the life Jesus offered and the life we're living. We feel it. We see it. We sense that whatever else Jesus came preaching, this can't be what he had in mind. A room full of people nodding to old platitudes, nodding off to old lullabies, perking up to Jonah-like rants, jumping up to split hairs, or break company at the smallest provocation. 
He can't have dreamed, catch this, a church gorging itself on feeling good and allergic to self-denial. He can't have hoped for a church that was more concerned with itself than with the world it inhabits. When Jesus announced that the kingdom was at hand, this can't be what he meant. What happened? When did we start making it our priority to be safe instead of dangerous? To be nice instead of holy? Cautious instead of bold? Self-absorbed instead of counting everything lost in order to be found in Christ? I want to turn the gaze on this church, on our church. Here's why this is a fun time to preach this sermon. I preach this series not to a group of people who are nodding off to old platitudes and barely singing lullabies as they fall asleep in church. I preach to a group of amazing people that God's gathered here that are energized, that are passionate, that are serving, that are longing to make a difference. But we all know collectively there's room for evaluation and there's room for growth. When we read that all that she can be, meaning the church, because of who's leading this whole thing, Jesus Christ. And when we think about all the resources given to the church, promised to the church, that is more than we could ever ask or think or imagine. We know there's possibility for more. That's in our minds, but then we live our lives. It's remarkable how big this gap can be. We can show up for church, and then we have our coffee, and we bump into Joy. Joy kind of steps back carelessly, and he bumps me while I'm holding my coffee. Speaking of the coffee, there's no salted caramel mix in it, and so it's kind of plain, and I'm a little bit irked at that. And then I come to my chair, and someone else is sitting in it. Can you believe it? And then they open with my probably my least favorite song, which always annoys me. And then the preacher's shirt is a little bit loud and obnoxious, and I don't like it at all. Sermon's too long. The chair's a little bit uncomfortable and scratchy. And then it dawns on me halfway through church. Man, I'm part of the problem. I know what the church is about. I know what she can be. I know what we're really doing here. And I shrink it down into salted caramel lattes. How foolish is that? I shrink it down into my little pet things that make me comfortable. And these are the godliest of people that will, that will sink into this. We all go there. So God... Help us, is the cry. We're taking a hard look at ourselves so that God can use us. God's used this church in some incredible ways. And I can't help but think there are some amazing things around the corner for this group of people. We're taking a hard look at ourselves so that people would marvel at what's going on here and cry out to the name of the Lord and be saved, just like the early church. That's why we're taking a hard look at ourselves. I want to share with you sort of the aha moment for this morning. The aha moment is this. You and I as Christians have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul's writing to a group of believers, and he's quoting from Isaiah. He's saying, who can understand the mind of the Lord? We can't instruct him. Who are we? 
But there's a powerful flip side to this. We have the mind of Christ. Do you know that every single believer possesses the Holy Spirit of Christ? Maybe a better way to say it is that we are possessed by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have been gifted a sound mind so as to see the world from God's perspective. What's powerful is we can choose not to use our minds. We often lose our minds, and sometimes our minds just get a little bit rusty, right? And so we know from other places, like Philippians 2, where it says, have this mind among yourselves that was in Christ, this one of humility and emptying yourself. In Romans, we see that we're, we're to renew our minds, right? So we have the mind of Christ, and we're to exercise thinking like Christ and sharpening our mind so that we can think clearly. This series is a call to have the mind of God on what it means to be a church and what it means to do church His way. I really come to the Bible this way every single time I read it, but but I think collectively we can all agree that as we come to the Scriptures and we say, God, would you show us, would you... Would you reform us back into the ways that you've thought about church and declutter some of the things that we're thinking about church? We anticipate a few things. We anticipate being reminded of old truths that we've known. They're stated beliefs. We've even sung them, but we're not living them. We anticipate being rebuked. Yikes, that's us. We've fallen asleep. We've grown cold. We've grown disunified, whatever it might be. I anticipate us collectively getting a little spiritual spanking, a little bit of a rebuke, saying, that's that's you guys, shape shape that part up. And I anticipate us being rekindled as the people of God. I think as we we re-remember, as we read from the Scriptures, this is who you are, church, it will rekindle a passion in us like never before. That's what I'm longing for. Remember I asked you last week if your goals, in fact, maybe this is a question in our men's group. I think we talked about this in, in small group. Do your goals require God or not? Here's one of my early goals for 2016. God, would you rekindle the people of God so that they're passionate about being the people of God? God, would you rebuke us as the people of God? God, would you remind us of things? I'll tell you, that's my goal as one of the pastors here. My goal requires God. I can't do that for you. I could light my hair on fire. I could do a song and dance. I could do my very best. But this is a spiritual work that has to go on. It's a spiritual work to kind of break through tradition and break through what what you already know to see fresh. God, here's, here's what God wants to show us. So what is the church? The church is kind of a confusing word simply because of how we use it. Even those who, who know better use the term church in, a, in, a, in, a, in an off kind of a way. Uh, in our household, uh, we have little ones, and little ones often say this, Is it church day? And I say, No, tomorrow is school day. Then the next day is chore day. I like to call it chore day. And then the next day is church day. So we talk about church day, but... But if you study the scriptures and understand what church really is, you understand um, that church isn't a day, right? It's not a place. It's not a denomination of churches. When you read the word church in the scriptures, almost every time, if not every time, the word is ekklesia in the Greek. Ekklesia simply means, means this, called out ones, those who've been summoned by God. It's a group 
of people. So think about it. When you hear in the scriptures, I will build my church, tell it to the church. Great fear came upon the whole church to the church that is at Thessalonica or wherever. Over and over and over again, what you're hearing is this. I will build my called out people. Great fear came upon the whole group of people who've been summoned by God. To the called out assembly who meet at Thessalonica. That's what it's talking about when it says the word church. As you read the whole of scriptures, you see this. God has always been calling people to himself. Adam and Eve, God called them to live with him. And then he creates a nation and calls a nation his very own through Abraham. That's the nation of Israel. And then what we just read in Pentecost, God throws open the doors and you see kind of God's plan all along that this was a blessing for Gentiles and Jews alike. It's for everyone. And the church age was ushered in. The call is clearly from God, and it's clearly from something into something else. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, For he has rescued us, catch this, from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now this new summons comes with it a brand new identity. Not only a brand new identity, but a brand new way of relating to the world that we're all born into. I've been reading a book called The Work of the Pastor by this Scottish pastor from, I think he may be dead, I'm not sure. But he's a guy that wrote an incredible little book. And it's just calling pastors to do biblical things. Go figure. And he said this quote that I thought I would share with you. He says this, you need to be called of God to stick out from a complacent, alien community like a sore thumb. You need not try to stick out. Just be faithful, and God will arrange it. I love that. You need not try to stick out. Just be faithful, and God's going to arrange out all the sticking out you need. Right? You live your life according to the Scriptures, you will be an utter oddball in your family. You will. Some of you are like, amen, preach it. I live that. You'll be an oddball to your neighbors. Your coworkers won't understand your thinking on things. You're nuts for doing that. What are you doing? Honestly, I'm just trying to live according to the scriptures. I'm just trying to follow God, that's all. That is totally abnormal. And it's not just our culture. Don't think our culture is special. All you have to do is pick a spot on the globe, live according to the scriptures, you'll stick out. You'll stick out. Jesus was telling us this in Matthew chapter 5. He said this. He said, you are the light of the world. Notice he doesn't say, hey, disciples, gather in close. I need you to try to be more light-like. Try to grow in your lightness. Instead, he says it very succinctly. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now this whole series, I want you to not look at light bulbs the same. Light bulbs are the churches. Light bulbs are the church. 
And as much variety as there is, there's lots of similarity. Think about the different sizes of light bulbs that there are, right? Different lumens, different wattages, different uses. But all light bulbs have a few things in common. Here's one thing we know about light bulbs. They do absolutely no good sitting in a drawer, right? Sitting in a drawer, they just do nothing. That's lighting a lamp and putting it under a basket. On their own, light bulbs share a few things. They're not really inherently attractive or valuable. They're kind of commonplace. No one said, oh, wow, he's got a light bulb. You just thought there's a light bulb, right? On its own, in fact, they're pretty fragile, right? You drop this thing, you sit on it, step on it, it's done. No one marvels at the light bulb on its own. What happens when you plug it into a socket? Something magical happens, right? Think about the church. From a power source outside of itself, where it has no ability at all to do it itself, from an outside power source, all of a sudden, the light bulb takes on something totally different, a completely different nature. Here's a few thoughts. Of course, it illuminates, right? It shows off what's going on in the room. It shows off what's on the road as you drive. But do you know that light also brings out color? So all of a sudden, we have a more colorful world. Why? Because of light coming on. Light also has the ability to change our mood. You walk into an utterly pitch black place. You click on a light. There's something that changes there, right? Fear dissipates. Worry dissipates. We use lighting in worship music. We use lighting in plays. Light has this ability to change us on a few different levels. Think about this fact that a light bulb can go unnoticed in your life for years. This light bulb right up here, who's paid attention to it in the last five years? No one. But that thing goes out in a couple of minutes, we'd all pay attention to it, right? How about the church? Churches can sit in a neighborhood. You know how many people I talk to? I say, hey, um, I'm part of this church called Neighborhood Bible Church. Where's that? Oh, it's right at Brian and Cherry. Oh, I live down the street. Wait, where is it again? It's next to John Muir Middle School. Oh, yeah, I know where John Muir is. Yeah, there's a church next door. People can drive by unnoticed to a church for years. Here's what all true churches, like all true light bulbs, ought to share in common. This thing goes away. This thing burns out. This thing breaks. The neighborhood ought to notice. The neighborhood ought to notice. I have no doubt that this neighborhood would notice if Neighborhood Bible Church goes away. You know what? Not because of the property, because people hardly know we're here. Oh, look, there's this thing on my drone I was filming, and there's a church there. Wow. But because of the people. The people that attend this church, the people that make up this church, if you were to, if you were to go away, your coworkers would notice. Your family would notice. Your neighbors would notice. Why? Because we have a group of people who are here who are filled with the Spirit of Christ. They're following Jesus Christ. When a light bulb goes out, you notice. Unless it's not plugged in. If it's just sitting there, you have no idea if it's functioning well or not, nor do you really care. And what makes up the church? People, right? So collectively, this is us. Uh, Ann bought this a while ago. She said, hey, Dave, I found this really cool thing that we're going to use in our decorating. I said, I love it. And then when I was putting this series together, I told Ann, I said, I know why God led you to this piece. I said, this is it. A bunch of individual light bulbs put together make up the church. 
Don't you love that it's flickering a little bit? Don't you love that it's not quite at its best? That's us, guys. We form a local church called Neighborhood Bible Church. We're not all shining at 100%. Some of us are flickering. Some of us are a little bit more dim than we used to be. Some of us are more dim than we'd like to admit. Some of us are on fire and shining bright and making the rest of us look pretty good. But that's us. A collection of little bulbs that get together and are a city on a hill that God can work through, that God can shine in. I love the variety that's seen in churches. Last night, we had the opportunity to go to San Francisco and worship with a group of believers that are a four-year-old church plant. Here's what makes them distinct. They're Ethiopians. So they do all their services in in, um, Amharic. They sing uh, Ethiopian worship music. They eat Ethiopian food when they have welcome lunches and the whole nine yards. Someone came into their youth group, and she happened to have Caucasian parents. It turns out she was adopted, and that those three started to talk to the pastor and said, hey, what if we reached out to the adoption community and just put on a big, a big dinner to just celebrate Christmas and put on a little worship service with people? The Ethiopian calendar is a little different than ours, so right now they're celebrating Christmas. We went up there last night, and we heard the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed and praised. We saw children thanking God that they were born again, and we worshiped the fact that God came to earth in a manger in the image of his son, and we sang about that and praised God for that. And as I looked around and marveled at all of this, gang, I thought, wow, here it is. Totally different light bulb, all the same components that make up our church. Love it. Love seeing that. I want you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. And before we get into specific markers... About the church in the coming weeks, I just wanted to give you some background work on what the church is. For three chapters, Paul tells Christians who we are in Christ and what God has done, and then he moves right into how we're supposed to walk in these truths. Several years ago, we walked through Ephesians as a church, and the title of it was One. Because there's two really big themes that emerge from the book of Ephesians. Well, there's a lot of themes, but one of them is that we're to be one. The other one is that we're to be holy, which means set apart. The called people of God are to be both of these. And it should be visible to us. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. When it says walk, that's code for your life with God. It's not talking about a morning stroll. So what does it mean to walk worthy? Flip over to chapter 5 for a second. Verse 2, it says we're to walk in love. Verse 8, it says we're to walk as children of light. Verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he provides some contrast down in verse 17 of chapter 5, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's saying, remember, church, you're called out. You're separate. You're sore thumbs. Go back to Ephesians 4 now. What should mark our walk with Christ? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We rattle through some things he just took us through. He's writing in a culture where humility was thought to be a defect. He starts with that. I think Paul starts with humility because you know what causes discord quicker than anything else? Pride. Sometimes it's overt pride. Those are the shouters. Sometimes it's subversive pride. You know who you are. You're thinking it, but you don't say it. You kind of bottle it up. Pride says, I'm never giving my rights up. I'm never giving my way up. That causes discord. So Paul says, you want to know, you want to know how to walk as a church? You walk in humility. Then he moves on to gentleness. What is gentleness? <clears throat> it's somewhere right in the middle of never getting mad and always getting mad, right? I think we think of gentleness. Some of your translations say meekness as Mr. Rogers. Wrong. Was Jesus gentle and meek? Say yes. Absolutely he was. Did Jesus get mad? Yeah, he did. Was he mad all the time? No. That means he's a rageaholic. That's not Jesus. Gentleness sits somewhere between there. Not a rageaholic, right? Not flying off the handle, but not so kind of, you know, pansy that he never raises his voice, never gets angry. He says, walk in gentleness, walk in meekness. He moves on to patience. Patience is never giving up. It's long-suffering. It means you're in for the long haul. When you join a church, you ought to think in terms of marathon, not a sprint. When you follow Christ, you ought to think the same way. Romans says this, love one another with brotherly affection. I've got three of them. Brothers aren't easy to love all the time, right? There's seasons where it's easy to love. There's seasons where it's really hard to love them. Love them with brotherly affection. It goes on to say, outdo one another in showing honor. Look what he moves on to, bearing with one another. Church, what if we put up with our faults of others? What if we put up with the quirkiness of others for the simple reason that we understand we have our own faults and our own quirks and people are putting up with us? Ben gave a message a couple weeks ago on forgiveness. Part of why it should be relatively easy, frankly, for Christians to forgive one another is if you sit at the feet of Jesus and recognize all that you've been forgiven, you realize the mound of debt, you don't owe me anything. Man, what you owe is so small. Let's get this on the table, let's talk about it, and let's be, let's be done with it. By the power of God, that's how Christians can bear with one another. And then look at verse 3. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This isn't a chore. The Spirit of God makes us eager to be one. You ought to have friends at church that make no sense outside of Christ being in the middle of that. There are Niner fans who love this Seahawks fan in the back, and the only way to explain that is Christ, right? <laughs> He's smiling because his team's playing in the playoffs today and the Niners aren't. Then Paul goes on to point out some truths, some facts that frame our unity. You know, words communicate math just like numbers do. You think about a grape plus time, what is that? It's a raisin, right? How about a pirate? Here's the math equation for a pirate. Thief plus boat plus bandana minus leg, right? There it is. Oh, you're taking a really long nap. Here's a fun one. What's this? 
There it is. That's your taxes right there. That's the formula. Let me give you one more from Ephesians. Okay, here it is. This math equation makes sense if you read Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 6. Let me walk you through it very quickly. There is one body. That's Christ's body, the universal church, the, the invisible. You've been roped into God's family for all of time. Oswald Chambers said this, When we are baptized with the Holy Ghost, we are no longer isolated believers, but part of the mystical body of Christ. Beware of attempting to live a holy life alone. It is impossible. Paul continually insists on the together aspects. God has great love for us. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him. That's Ephesians chapter 2, by the way. There's also one Spirit, verse 4, the Holy Spirit. We're individually indwelt by the Spirit, but we fit together because there's one Spirit. There's also one hope. The Holy Spirit is a little bit like a promise ring or an engagement ring. It's the promise that the return of Christ is coming. We all hope in the same thing. Our hope is unified because of that. Here's the second set of three. There's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. (coughs) Ephesians 1 says this about one Lord. And He put all things under His feet, that's Jesus, and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Every church... Every true church has one senior pastor. It's Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's the one we're all taking our cues from. That means that elders like Jim, he could go develop a librarian ministry somewhere off in Montana or something. And the church wouldn't fall apart because it's not Jim's church. He didn't die for it. He didn't pay for it. He's not building it up. He's not disciplining it. That's the same with me. It's the same with Ben. It's the same with anyone who's on stage or serving. It's Jesus' church. He's the head. There's one faith, the Christian faith. Because there is one Lord, one to trust, one message is trustworthy. Jesus Christ is the Savior. This is the church's call from the very beginning of time. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a really unpopular message today, isn't that? That's hate speech right there. You know what that is? That's just orthodoxy. That's the message the church has been given a long time ago. And you watch history throughout the ages. It goes from being praised that you say those things to killed that you say those things. We're on a downslope in case you haven't paid attention. That's getting really testy to say there's one name under which you must be saved. And it's the name Jesus Christ. But that's what we boldly proclaim. There's one baptism. Water baptism is a visual sign of unity. Let me give you the last one. There is one God and Father, verse 6. The Heavenly Father. God's mind for the church isn't that we're all the same, but clearly His mind is that we are one as a body. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. When you look around and see factions in the church, so many varieties, so many hair-splitting arguments, you might ask, what's the deal? In John chapter 2, Jesus <clears throat> comes to the temple, and he, it says this, In the temple, he, meaning Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. You can't imagine Mr. Rogers doing that, right? And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I bet they're thinking, yeah, I guess so. Jesus is flipping out on these guys. What's the deal? Jesus is cleaning house. You know why he's cleaning house? Because God's house of worship gets cluttered, right? It just gets cluttered over time. And Jesus comes in and he makes a giant statement. Do you know why there were items being sold in the temple? It was because as people came from the countryside and came to worship God, they needed to have something to offer. And so they would come, and it was, it was actually a service. It probably began as a very good thing, a service to say, here, you can get something to offer to God, a living sacrifice. But slowly over time, subtly, that turned into, you know what? We can make a little bling on the side here. Let's work the system a little bit. These people have to buy something. They're coming from far away. We're the only game in town. Let's, let's make some money. That's what Jesus was decluttering. As we look at us, let me leave you with a couple of what-ifs. Philip Yancey, in a book called Church, Why Bother? says this, Church exists primarily not to provide entertainment or to encourage vulnerability, to build self-esteem, or to facilitate friendship, but to worship God. What if you could quantify health, or to kind of stick with our metaphor, quantify brightness? What if we were to say, God, would you grow Neighborhood Bible Church 40% in its health this year? Would you make us 40% brighter in 2016? I mean, what would that do to this neighborhood? How would the neighborhood benefit if Neighborhood Bible Church, all three services worth, were 40% brighter, 40% more fit for the Lord? What would that do for people in need in this neighborhood? What would that do for people's view of Christ? Think about this. What would that do to our fellow churches as they saw God moving in us in some powerful ways and it would rekindle and stir them to say, what about us? 40% is a really arbitrary number. But here's the kicker. If we're going to grow by 40% in brightness or health, you know what that means? That means you are going to grow. Each one of you. That's how the church gets brighter. That's how the church gets more fit. That's how the church is found faithful. When the assembled people, when the called out ones get more fit, when the called out ones live out their calling as the light of the world. Would you close your eyes with me? Spirit, we're really inviting you to blow through this house and freshen the air that is in here. God, I pray that you would blow through each mind and heart of people who are sitting in this room right now. God, that we'd stop being okay with the crud in our lives. Spirit, we recognize that this 
This is an act of you. You will have to give us eyes to see. You will have to give us the grace to have courage to act and change. We will continue to call out and celebrate the work that you're doing in our midst. Church, my challenge for you is this. Evaluate the bright spots and the failings of this body. Ask God to change it in me first and most. And then collectively, God, we look forward to see what you're going to do in this coming year. We look forward to see how this neighborhood is going to be awakened to the realities of your grace. Because we're simply living out faithful, biblical Christianity. And all God's people said, Amen.